Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. Hi, and welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With me is our classmate, Kevin Berlin, an international artist who I think is joining us from Italy. Hi, Kevin. Buongiorno, as they say around here. I'm having my morning espresso, cafe mocha. Excellent. You're in Florence now, right? I can prove I'm in Florence because I just stopped at the market and I have these actual Florentine tomatoes. Very nice. So what are you up to these days? Well, I've been in Florence off and on for the last two years. I was here especially during the what we in Italy we call the lockdown, almost a year and a half. And I'm working on a lot of new projects as usual, a lot of things simultaneously. Basically, my work is in almost every medium. So I'm working on painting, sculpture, and something that they call loosely call performance art. Two big painting projects going on right now. One, I'm trying to paint a party that you wish you were invited to. I started this just before the pandemic, and all of a sudden there were no parties at all. And uh, a lot of my work is based on authenticity. In other words, if I want to paint a party, I will go to a party and see what people are doing. If I want to paint a tiger, I'll you know go to get near a real tiger. So I found all of a sudden there was no parties. I kind of lost my momentum. And now I'm kind of painting about, still about this dream about what would be the perfect party, something that you could go to. And I've been painting party scenes for about 20 years. Uh, my other big theme, I'm working on a giant painting of a big fight between a group of ballerinas. My other main theme is classical ballet, and I've been working with ballet dancers in various theaters around the world for the last 20 years. Uh, and basically, the dancers are in a big fight. So it's a fight scene. The kind of moment that happens if you've ever seen a World Cup or a basketball game and there's too much adrenaline and it's the world final and all of a sudden somebody just takes a punch at somebody else and there's complete chaos. I think in Yale they used to call it an interregnum, you know, something between when the peasants rush to the palace and then everything calms down, people get penalties and whatnot. And that never happens in ballet. And so I thought it would be an exciting theme. I often paint about what people are thinking, but they're afraid to say. And if you've ever met a classical ballet dancer, they have so much personal strength and so much discipline, and they are enormously polite, even in difficult situations. So how do you pick the things that are going to be the most interesting things for you to capture as an artist? That's a really good question. I guess I go back to this idea of authenticity. I do my homework. So, for example, I've traveled to Russia to work with the Kirov Ballet. I work with over 100 ballet dancers there, also in Ukraine, the National Opera and Ballet. And I interview dancers one-on-one, -on -one, and I ask them a simple question. Um, I, I ask them, what did your mother tell you not to do? And there is something extraordinary about mothers, something universal, that most mothers probably say about the same thing. Don't drink too much. Don't smoke. Don't get a giant tattoo, you know, don't play with guns, uh, don't be drunk on the sidewalk. And so 
in my paintings, the dancers are doing all the things that they're not supposed to. So I'm going to ask you the same question. What did your mother tell you not to do? Oh, it's the same list that you got. You know, don't skateboard too fast. You're going to scrape your knee. Um, you know, if you have a stain on your shirt, change your shirt. A lot of really basic things. And of course, there's some big life kind of things that you should do. If you talk to my mother, she would probably say that I haven't changed since I was five years old. Um, a lot of the things that I'm excited about, I'm still working on a project with turtles, which I'll maybe talk about in a little bit. I still love, you know, I, most of the things that I did even when I was in college, I'm still very uh, involved with. I, I really haven't changed very much. And I'm not sure why that's valuable, and I never thought about it. Maybe during this pandemic, we've had a chance to think about things. But part of it is just this simple idea that you have to be curious. You have to have what Da Vinci here in Florence used to, uh, I, I guess, a sense of wonder. Like, why is the sky blue anyway? That was the question Da Vinci had. I don't wonder that much about the sky blue, but if you wake up every day and you pretend you've never seen a tomato before, like, what is that? Look at that color. It's like a miracle. It's like a new world. Then you can paint a beautiful tomato. If you think I've been there, done that, I'm not sure why I even got up this morning, you're not going to do much. So I think it's very valuable to always put yourself in new situations, talk to new people. And one thing I learned at Yale and I learned it from a guy named Bart Giamatti, uh, who I was a great admirer of. I was president of Yale at the time and eventually became baseball commissioner. And we, we sadly lost him way too soon. Besides talking about the joys of a liberal education, everything from literature to lasers, he mentioned this idea in one of his speeches that if you don't know something, you have to recognize that you don't know it. And then go out and find it because we don't know everything already. And that's actually something that's quite exciting. In fact, if you talk to someone as smart as Einstein about physics, he'll say we don't know anything. So this idea of recognizing what you don't know and then going, well, how am I going to find out more about that? If I find out more about a tomato, maybe I have to go talk to a tomato farmer. Maybe I need to go to Sicily and see the difference between the tomatoes. How do you find out what you don't know? And that keeps you very busy, but also it's a great way to find out ideas. So as soon as you have a theme, you can jump in, just make a list. What do I not know? And I don't know what people are thinking about that they're afraid to say. So how do you get people to open up to you as an artist? Well, I would suggest wine and chocolate would be an easy answer, but that's kind of silly. <laughs> I'm not suggesting tequila or something like that. I think that there is something that allows people, if they have a chance, they like to tell the truth. Because all of us have things that we don't tell our mother, you don't tell your best friend. Maybe you'll tell a stranger on a train or someone who cuts your hair. Uh, or maybe you'll tell me if I ask. But I think it's a lot like oftentimes, I read a lot of these books by Georges Simenon about the chief inspector, my gray, who's a French investigator back in, I guess, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And he would say that people who do something that they can't tell anybody, they want to tell somebody. They're just waiting for that chance to confess. And if you can just listen, just shut your mouth. Like I read a fantastic uh, autobiography of Larry King, and he said one thing that always stood with me. He said, I never learned anything while I was talking. So the simple thing is get yourself in the situation, know what question you want, and, and listen. And a lot of people would just like to tell you because they don't have a chance to share. 
every culture has things that are taboo or unspeakable or, you know, inappropriate or something like that. And people are afraid of bad judgment. So they don't tell you their secrets. But if you say, hey, this is for the history of art. And then listen, maybe you'll hear something. Interesting. Yeah, I have to say, I've always thought of visual artists as people who speak but not listen, because it's a one way from the artist to the viewer. But what you're telling me is it's actually listening and then translating through your art. It's completely the opposite. And when you translate through the art, you have one important thing to do, and that is you want to share some emotion, some message. But I'd really push, and I always push the idea that the artist has a limited role. The artist isn't supposed to solve a problem. The artist isn't supposed to fix anything. The artist really should just start a conversation. And even a narrative painting, and all of my paintings are narrative or my sculptures or things that tell a story. I start somewhere in the middle of the story. I never do a polemic. I never tell you what's right and wrong or anything like that. What I'd rather do is just begin a, a dialogue or a conversation because those are the things that are most powerful. And if you look at all the paintings in the Renaissance, which I admire a lot of these artists, you know, Michelangelo and Raffaello, you know, might have walked by my front door. They were basically hired by a church that was trying to communicate with people who can't read because most of the churchgoers in the Renaissance couldn't read. How do you communicate? Tell a story, a story even, you know, with little kids, you know, that's a good way to get them to remember. And especially a fairy tale, which Disney understood, you learn about the big bad wolf might be out there. Pay attention, you know, don't just leave some breadcrumbs, do something better than that. And so the idea is to tell a story. And that's a good way for people to remember what you're trying to communicate. But don't try and fix anything. Just get people talking. So how do you choose the medium that's going to be the most effective for telling the story or initiating the conversation? You work with so many. How do you pick the medium for the message? The secret is the message comes first. If you like the color, maybe you'll paint it. If you like the shape or you want it to be permanent, maybe you need to build something out of bronze so it can you know, resist the weather. If you're painting Elvis Presley, maybe you need neon. Maybe you have to write it. Maybe you have to do a podcast because there's no other way to tell this story. How do you get people to feel like they're in the room with you when we've got this flat computer we're looking at and you're not in Florence and I'm not where you are and yet we want to communicate. We want to touch each other. You know who can do this great is uh, just pick any musician, Elvis Presley, Taylor Swift, I don't care, the Beatles. Because when you hear those songs, it's immediate. You're there and you feel something, any good song you hear. And you want to find a medium that's going to connect to touch and somehow. And so I, that's why I've done a lot of performance art over the time, which is something no one really knows what a performance art is. Abramovich has done some museum shows, but pretty much it's how do you express something that you can't do with a painting or a sculpture? And in my case, I try and make short videos to kind of to capture these, these events. But the idea comes first and you say, how am I going to deliver this message? And how am I going to reach my audience and then pick the medium? And so I think today you have to be a bit like Da Vinci. You have to be a master of every medium. And when times change, you have to change. The first time I ever received an email, I, it was a quote from Charles Darwin. I don't know who sent this. And people at that time said that 
email is something, you know, we don't know how we can make any money from the internet. That was the big thought then. And I used to pay five bucks to get someone to type my papers when I was at Yale. You know, because I didn't even have, a, I didn't even, wasn't even good with a typewriter. Anyway, I got this email, Charles Darwin, and it said, the species most likely to survive is not the most intelligent, and it's not physically the strongest, but rather the one that's most responsive to change. In other words, if it gets cold, you better get feathers. Are you going to get pneumonia? And so it's the same thing. If I want to keep telling my story and the world is changing, I need to be ready there to jump into that, uh, that new medium. And so, I mean, that's, it's a miracle we're talking right now. Yeah. I mean, it's in 1820 when my grandmother who was born in 1913, she was born, there was a horse and carriage. They used to have a refrigerator. They used to have an ice box. They would put a chunk of ice in the refrigerator. They hadn't invented plastic yet. Never mind, you know, a moving picture. People ran out of the theater because they thought they were going to be hit by a train. Yeah, it is remarkable. And yet here we are. That's the beauty of this. So let me ask you, I think you use your art sometimes to talk about social issues. Uh, what are the social issues you try to tackle? And uh, how do you pick the ones that you're going to deal with in your art? Usually it's the most obvious thing sitting in front of me. Like I have noticed, and I've been working on the theme about the use of cell phones uh, or perhaps the not quite efficient use of cell phones. I, I did a performance art piece at, uh, I think it was Art Southampton about maybe 10 years ago. And I figured anybody on the phone, it's like they're on another planet. So I actually staged an alien invasion with 12 aliens showed up in art show with laser guns and started stealing things using their cell phones. And of course it seemed ridiculous, but I remember at uh, maybe, maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe a little more. I was talking to my brother, you know, and I love my brother and I'm talking to him, but he's not looking at me. He's looking at the phone and I'm wondering what could be more interesting than me. You know, it's your own brother you're talking to. Yeah. What's on that phone? And I figured it must be naked aliens or, you know, or something <laughs> crazy like that. Um, and so I've still been pursuing this idea. And one thing that really has hit me recently is there's a couple of people in the world who have more possibility than anyone in history. They've got more wealth than, you know, than Genghis Khan or, uh, you know, list somebody from, you know, the pharaohs of Egypt. Um, one is the Tesla guy. And one is the Amazon guy. And they both keep talking about Mars. And I'm just wondering, what about this planet? I mean, it's exciting or interesting to go to the next place, but we still have a planet right now. And then I started thinking about a lot of things that happened to me when I was at Yale. Because um, I've always been, as a side topic, I've always loved animals, especially turtles when I was very small. But at Yale, I studied zoology. Uh, with Charles Remington, for anybody out there who used to study with Charles Remington, I studied terrestrial arthropods, which is more or less bugs, you know, spiders and insects and things. And then when I went to London after college, I studied zoology uh, as a side thing. I was at the Slade School of Fine Art, but uh, University College London also has an incredible zoology uh, department. And I learned about uh, vertebrates because I figured if you're ever going to have a backbone yourself, you should know about animals that have backbones. And if you read books, there's a great book by David Quammen called Monsters of God, which is about all the large animals that can eat people, you know, a crocodile, lion, uh, tigers, etc. And you can learn a lot about people from what animals do. 
because their behavior is very, very uh, similar. And I got very interested in elephants. And I went to a conference on large African mammals when I was in London at school. And there's a guy named um, Ian, I can't remember, Ian Hamilton, I think. And he is a great conservationist who's especially interested in helping rhinoceroses and elephants. And he showed a map. It was a map of Africa. And it had a map of where elephants live. And then it was an inverse map where people live. And it was completely the opposite. Where elephants live, people don't live. Um, and as it turns out, it's the same for any big animal, whether it's a giraffe or a rhinoceros or, any, or anything else. And then he showed over time, slowly there's more and more people on the map and less and less place for the animals. And my thought was, we are going to need to go to Mars if something doesn't happen to try and stabilize a little bit uh, a place for some of these animals. And how does that, that idea, that thought, translate into the art? Is that why you're focusing on tortoises, or is there some other way that, that it gets into your art? I went to the Galapagos Islands recently and uh, was very uh, extraordinary. It was about six years ago. And uh, besides the fact I was surprised how few animals there are, because you see on these documentaries on the nature channels, there's a zillion animals that I actually know. And I kind of uh, discovered from the giant tortoises that there's actually giant tortoises in Miami. And recently I was at Art Basel, Miami, and I stopped at a giant tortoise farm that's uh, not far from, uh, from Miami, about 40 minutes. And I spent some time with these tortoises recently. And right now I'm working on a group of paintings about the Indian star tortoise. And what's going to happen is all of my animals are probably going to end up on Mars. Uh, just to start a conversation. Because I don't know if anybody wants to see a picture of a beautiful tortoise and a beautiful, you know, uh, jungle. Maybe it's time to say, well, maybe there's uh, we're going to end up on Mars if we're not careful. Could be. <laughs> I'm still enjoying here, so I don't have any plans to go. I am too. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. So let me ask you this. Um, I've read a lot, heard about NFTs. Are you doing anything with those? Oh, I, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Uh, let's see. Well, First of all, I can tell you that for the last two years on my website, kevinberlin.com, it says digital assets next to painting, sculpture, bio, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And each year I change it from coming soon 2021 to coming soon 2022. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I finally got, a, I guess you call it a wallet. This is completely new territory for everybody. And even people who understand NFTs really don't understand NFTs. But I'm making uh, progress, and if you go to uh, that page on my website, there's a beautiful photo because almost all of the surface of Mars has already been mapped out, surprisingly enough. Mm -hmm. And especially recently, the NASA in the U.S. has gone to Mars. They've, there's some uh, explorations from, uh, from China as well. But they took a lot of photos, and we never used to have photos, and that's something that excites me is what's new. Why do you read the newspaper? Because it's new. If, you give, if I give you a newspaper from three days ago, you probably didn't want to see it. 
You want to see what's new. What's new is exciting. And what's new is these extraordinarily images. And I believe they're all available to the public for free. I believe that's part of NASA's mission. I'm still exploring a little more. Um, and I also uh, love a quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger, and that's my standing point, uh, you know, the starting point. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Total Recall a while back. Yes. where Arnold Schwarzenegger plays uh, a construction worker who's actually an international spy who's going to save the world. Yeah, based on a that. Philip Dick novel. Probably. Uh, sounds right. And he had this quote that always stands with me. Early on in the movie, when he didn't realize he had brainwashed him or something, so he couldn't remember anything, he said, I don't know who I am anymore. I want to go to Mars. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. There's something to that. So anything I tell you about NFTs is that's my starting point is I don't know who I am anymore. And that's going to be the discovery right there. So tell me about the pandemic. What did you do artistically during the pandemic? What have been your areas of focus there? It was an extraordinary time in the last two years. And I can't think of anything really good about it in a lot of ways. I mean, I know you've um, always should look for, you know, silver linings and this kind of thing. Almost everybody I know has been in some crisis, whether personal, emotional, financial, or some other way. So it's a very, very challenging time. And me being an optimist, I always thought, what's well, going to be over in two or three months. So I thought, well, you just hunker down, I'll work on some things, it's going to be over. And then three months will go by and then repeat and then repeat. And I filmed a short performance piece called Moonwalk, which was my first performance I did. And I wasn't really planning to do it, but I had received over the uh, Christmas holidays, I had received a beekeeper outfit. Uh, it was a, a family gift. And I had these electric orange shoes that were also a family gift. And so I put on the beekeeper outfit and I walked into Piazza della Signoria. Piazza Signoria is a beautiful square in the center of Florence. It's where the statue of David by Michelangelo used to stand. And now there's a beautiful copy. There's a part of the Uffizi Museum. It's an outdoor space. It's one of the most beautiful, extraordinary places in the world, I think, in terms of a square. And in Italy, easily, which has so many beautiful squares. And normally there are, anytime, 24 hours a day, there's you know, 10, 20, 50 people. In the summer, there's probably 500 or 1,000 walking in and out. It was empty. There were zero people. There was no one. And it was like one of those zombie movies that you hear about. But I didn't think of it that way. I just thought that it's when Buzz Aldrin went to the moon, he just used these two words, magnificent desolation. And the idea was this place has nothing. It is empty. It is desolate. And so I filmed a little video just walking in the square trying to buy my groceries. Because legally, you could still go out and get groceries or medicine. And I just stood there in the sun and looked up. And by some uh, small miracle, I was able to use the music from Dark Side of the Mood by Pink Floyd, which really connected very well. It's only a one-minute video. It's just doing nothing. You're just buying your groceries. But buying your groceries became a transformation into a, a walk on the moon. And I'm trying to say this to you with words, but really words... I'm not a, you know, not Lord Byron. I'm not Shakespeare or something. My words are not. I had to say it another way. So I said it with this little video. And hopefully if you do have a chance to watch the video, Moonwalk, I have it on my YouTube channel, just Kevin Berlin. Oh. Um, you'll get a sense of, uh, 
of what it felt like. I guess I don't know if that makes much sense. Oh, it makes complete sense, and I actually did see the video, and so I'll oh, I'll post great. a link to it on the with the podcast because uh, you know it, it, yeah. it was a it's just a bizarre time, and I think I I think we're I hope at least in the New York City area coming out of it, and you know it's almost like a like a chrysalis opening, hopefully. I really hope so. Yeah, the other I was going to mention the one other project I did was great. It's called Grapes. It's a seven minute video, and it's about what happens after being locked up for six months when you go back to work. So it's a short film um, with the idea of an artist, a landscape painter, goes into Montepulciano, the beautiful wine country, and tries to you know paint landscapes again. I'll give you a hint: he drinks too much. Um, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, whoops. <laughs> I know I just read that for anybody who watches grapes, but it's, uh, again, trying to tell a story without the sculpture, without a painting. Obviously, my first love is painting, sculpture, drawing. Mm-hmm. I used to draw. I started drawing nudes when I was 12 years old at the Corcoran School of Art. Uh, did some studying of art, majored in art at Yale. So let me ask you this, though. While, while you're mentioning that, when you think back, because now we're 35 years out of college. 38. But- Oh, well, since we started, yes. Uh, but uh, so anyway, so here's the question, though. When you look back, what were the most important classes that you took? The art classes or the non-art classes in informing the way you approach your craft? It's strangely enough, and I had, I don't want to, you know, not say something good. I had Bert, Bernard Chait. I had, I had a lot of really great art teachers and one or two, which I'd prefer not to mention, but probably answering the question right away. First thing comes to mind is my best class was a class I never took. What was that? Well, I don't know if you remember flash dance. Oh yeah, sure. Well, there was a woman named Jennifer Beals who I was quite enamored with at some level at that time, um, who was a, a class uh, mate, but she was a senior. I think uh, we were freshmen and there was a class that somehow I knew she was trying to take by a gentleman named Harold Bloom. And Harold Bloom was teaching only to seniors, but you could sit in on the class. You used to be able to go in. And I went into the class because the class was called, um, I can't remember, but there was a reading list. It was uh, the Canterbury Tales, the St. James Bible, and the, um, uh, and the complete works of Shakespeare. And sitting in the class was Jennifer Beals. And I thought, I really want to be in this class. But what really struck me was not actually what got me to the class, but was what Harold Bloom said. And of course, you know, he's famous for writing a book called The Anxiety of Influence, which was maybe one of the first books to talk about deconstructionism. How do you take things apart? Not necessarily put them back together, but take uh, poems and words apart and how everything comes from something else. But he said in this lecture, and I'll never forget it, he talked about uh, there was characters who died. I think it was in uh, it was either King Lear of Macbeth. I don't even remember the play, but there was a character who dies, and at that moment, there's a woman who's in love with him, and she's weeping, and he's dying, and he doesn't understand. He says something like, "But Edmund was beloved," and he couldn't understand that someone actually loved him, and that was one of the profound ideas, I think, in all of literature and for ourselves right now, you know, sharing time with your family, with your friends, realizing what's important during this pandemic. Are you really loved? Does someone really love you? Is that even possible? And 
that thought is something I think that you could make a hundred paintings about. It's a, it's an eternal question, which I think is maybe more profound, or at least struck me in a way that, uh, that, you know, so many other classes that I took maybe don't remember. And I didn't end up taking the class because you had to read an entire book in two days in order to even come to the next session. He said, if you don't read this entire book by Tuesday, you know, don't come. And, you know, I had a lot of things going on. I was taking other classes and you know, had friends and whatnot. And, and I missed it. And I forgot all about Jennifer Beals, but I remembered this profound question that was asked in Shakespeare by Harold Bloom about, you know, are we worthy of being loved? Wow. Yeah, that's, I didn't even know I knew that. Yeah, that's something. So what's next for you? What are you looking to do next? I'm glad you asked that. If I can even think of what I'm doing next. Um, uh, obviously, I want to finish all the paintings. Um, I'm hoping to organize a museum show in Miami and Dubai. I have never done a museum show before. And so those are some good possibilities. I'd love to reconnect. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the big alumni meeting, you know, the reunion yeah, 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 this year. Yeah, yeah. But I'd love to show some art at Yale sometime, either at the one of the Yale art galleries or in some more informal space. I've realized over this time it would be great to – I have some very close friends from uh, freshman year, Timothy Dwight and and 2 E, and I'd like, I'd like to spend more time and I'd like to – I don't want to use the cliche of giving something back, but I'd like to share something, uh, you know, share some of my journeys with some of my fellow students. And, and I'm hoping that that might happen at, at uh, one of the spaces, you know, the art gallery or otherwise. So we've gotten to the point of the podcast where I asked some rapid fire questions, the lightning okay. round. So here we go. Okay. You got some lightning round questions. Let me get a little more espresso here. I'm going to be ready for this. <laughs> Perfect. Bottoms up. Perfect. Yeah, everybody's addicted to something. Yeah, so. that's right. So first question, every time I've seen you in the last several years, we saw each other, I think at the Yale Club in New York uh, before the mm -hmm. pandemic, and I see pictures of you, you've got a top hat. What's the deal with the top hat? When I was 18, I had a show at the Bonwit Teller Windows. That tells you how long ago I was 18. By the way, I changed my age on Facebook, so I'm 24 now. You can do that. Um, anyway, when I was 18, I had a show at the Bonwit Teller Windows on, I think it's on Fifth Avenue or something in New York City. And my parents, my mother and father, came for, it was like a little celebration, and they brought me my first top hat. And... I don't know why I asked them, how did you know I should be wearing a top hat? And my mother said, I know my boy, something like that. And so I wore a top hat all the time for about 10 years and I lost it. I don't know. And then I rediscovered it in, in, in a closet or something, my old you know childhood bedroom. And then I started wearing the hat again. So it looks like I've been wearing pretty much a top hat since I was about 18. It's just fun to wear a top hat. And the other thing that's nice is you get a lot of respect. If you wear a top hat, I mean, taxi drivers open the door for you instead of letting you get it yourself. They try to charge you double in Czech Republic. That's another story. Um, but and eventually I started designing my own hats recently. I launched a fashion line. I figure, you know, working in every other medium, I can be a fashion designer. Why not? So I came up with a, a brand of hot hats, uh, Kevin Berlin, New York. I don't know if you can see. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. But mostly they're just uh, they're just fun. But the best thing about a top hat is. If you go somewhere and you're wearing a top hat, as soon as you take it off, you're invisible. 
because everyone's looking for the guy in the hat. And the one thing I can tell you, and I remember this from Yale, is there's a guy named Mellon who did the, I think it's the British Museum at Yale. Mm-hmm. He had a birthday party, like an 80th birthday. And somebody asked him, what's the most valuable thing to you in your life? And this was many, many years ago. And he said that I'm uh, my, uh, what do you call it? Anonymity. Nobody knows my face. They don't see me, so I can do anything I want. And that's one thing that we have all lost with these, uh, you know, devices is we've lost our chance to be, just be ourselves. And you hear about movie stars like Daniel Craig, the James Bond wanting to kill himself because he can't go anywhere without someone wanting to take a selfie with him. And this man who obviously was very rich and very, very uh, connected in every possible way and had a beautiful life, I'm sure, Mr. Mellon, he said that that's the thing that he values the most. And so I think the real way to be a VIP now is if nobody can find you, uh, nobody can reach you. That's like, that's heaven. So I find if I usually wear a hat, when I take off the hat, nobody recognizes me. Nobody knows who I am and I can just enjoy life. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I think we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk. It's been great. No, I really uh, thank you. I think what you're doing is wonderful to, uh, you know, to, to bring people together because it's a good moment now. And I, I like the chance to, you know, get a little view into other people's lives and what they're thinking about a little bit. You're making that happen. So as, uh, as Master T from Timothy Dwight would say, uh, Ashe, Ashe, make it happen. And you've been making it happen. So we really appreciate what you've been doing. Thanks. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, we will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale College class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest 
class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.